Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 386, The Swelling Violence. Well, gentle listeners, I hope you are happy. Over the last two episodes, we have at last got all fighty. Although last time, the Battle for London wasn't much in terms of glorious warfare and heroism. Though, of course, I also gave in to my baser instincts and in addition to the threat of violence at least... I gave you a full frontal of the sight of the people of London pulling together to face down the threat to their liberty. But the point is that Charles had missed an apparent chance to end the war quickly. To be fair to the lad, how significant that chance was is a little bit moot. There's the small issue that he was outnumbered twicefold, and although his army was more professional, probably he was fighting in a landscape which didn't favour his strong point, his cavalry. Quite apart from that, it's worth noting that throughout England and Wales, local armies were already springing up like mushrooms, so that even if he'd captured London, he'd have had his work cut out. But anyway, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. He didn't. He went, instead, to his new home in Oxford. This time, in this episode then, we should do a bit of cleaning around the house of 1642, a bit of a spring clean, so that the house of history is nice and tidy and ready for the new year, which I can reveal will be 1643. So, maybe today we'll talk about military strategy and stuff, a bit about the court life in Oxford, but before any of that happens, I need to go back, and I need to cover what I passed over for the purposes of narrative. This concerns Scotland and Ireland. 
Because, as you know, anyone foolish enough to talk about the English Civil War will immediately be thrown into the darkest dungeon of historical shame, which is reserved for those guilty of being Anglo-centric. Capital A, capital C. So we cannot have that. War of three kingdoms, including a principality and numerous idiosyncratic island territories directly governed by the Crown, to be more precise. North Atlantic archipelago sort of stuff. So, let us go back to early 1642, to February, when the king was still in the big smoke and the news was all about the massacre of Protestants in Ireland. More and more English settlers came back to their parishes telling their tales of destruction, of death and atrocity, and there was a pretty much national desire across the supporters of king or parliament to protect the lives of those that remained. But no one wanted to give the king that shiny sword of an army to deal with the rebellion in Ireland. And anyway, there appears to be no money. So what to do about Ireland, where a small government army was doing little more than cling on in the Pale and the Eastern Seaboard? Everyone wanted to do something, but it was, well, it was complicated. There were no clean solutions, a bit like when the septic tank breaks down. Now, this is when King and Parliament were still sort of talking to each other. And also, Charles had supposedly patched things up with Archibald Campbell, the Marquis of Argyle and the Covenanters in Scotland. Either way, you do need to look at the portrait of the Marquis of Argyle, the Covenanter magnate who was beginning to dominate the Scottish government. Here is a man for, for whom your table manners would need to be spot on or there'd be trouble, and clearly a man also with a love of sucking lemons. Go and have a look on the website. Anyway, a request was sent to Argyle from King and Parliament together, wondering if, maybe, possibly, perhaps, the Scots might want to send an army to Ireland to deal with the rebellion there. Now, it turned out that they did, because the Scots, remember, had a lot of skin in this particular game many of the colonists being killed or thrown off their land and coming back penniless to their parishes, were Scots. The Covenanters were deeply concerned with the welfare of their people in Ulster. And so it was quickly agreed with Argyll that until the English got their act together and sorted things out, the Scots would not only be defending their own people, but working to restore order across the island, working under the overall control of the English government in Dublin, the head of which would be their line manager, as it were. This begs the question of who was the English government in Ireland at the time. And to tell you that, I need to introduce a new name to you, or reintroduce one if I've done so before. I mean, I forget. There have been so many words. James Butler was a young, sprightly 32-year-old in 1642 and the 12th Earl of Ormond. As you can guess from the number 12, the Ormonds were a family old in the Anglo-Irish peerage. The first Earl of Ormond, also a Jimmy, had been born in 1304, and I think his dad had been a justicia and chief butler of Ireland. Justicia brings back many happy memories of simpler days and shorter podcasts. Anyway, R. Ormond had been brought up in the household of George Abbott, the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, and as such, he was a Protestant. He returned to Ireland, and he married well, as my granny would have said, marrying Elizabeth Preston, and this, and the death of the previous Earl, 
allowed him to reconsolidate the extensive Ormond estates, which had been rather split up through the pains of the Tudor surrender and re-grant stuff. Now, he was a bit of a problem for the traditional Ormond affinity. They didn't like this Protestantism stuff one little bit, and indeed, the Catholic Bishop of Ossory stirred up as much trouble for him as possible. Which does allow me to remind you that there is a Catholic ecclesiastical hierarchy in Ireland at this very time, which is relevant, or indeed it will be soon. The Protestant thing, to which the notably pious Ormond and descendants would now stick firmly, made him, on the other hand, very acceptable to the king. Thus, although not formally made Lieutenant General of Ireland until 1643, Ormond became the de facto head of the council in Dublin. Things were not easy for him during the revolt of 1641. He, of course, had to deal with the rebellion, the vast numbers of bedraggled surviving Protestants flooding into Dublin. He also had to deal politically with a faction of the New English on the Dublin Council, desperate to take vigorous and blood-curdling reprisals against the rebels. He managed, however, to assert his dominance over the council, although the New English would always be a factor and a thorn in his side. In this, he was helped by the fact that there remained a number of other Anglo-Irish lords, Catholic in the main, who remained loyal to Charles I, the Earl of Clanricard, for example, while the Earls of Thomond at least remained neutral. By July 1642, then, the situation in Ireland had been transformed. A substantial Scottish army of 10,000 men under Robert Munro, another Scottish veteran of the Thirty Years' War, was installed in Ulster. In theory, as I say, they were supposed to be doing what Ormond told them to do, but nah, the two masters' things doesn't work, and Munro took his orders from Argyll. They would resolutely stay and fight in Ulster, where the Scottish settlers were, and they were not at home for anywhere else in Ireland. Now, this army was supposed to be paid for by the English, and it was, in theory, and theory only, their sword, but there was no money. So what we get is the Adventurers Act of March 1642, passed by Parliament willingly, but done at the request of Charles. The Adventurers Act asked for investment from interested parties to pay for soldiers to go to Ireland and fight the rebellion, and in return they would be paid with lands confiscated from the rebels. The Adventurers Act would be the basis for the Act of Settlement of Ireland in 1652, which would transform land ownership in Ireland and not to the benefit of the Catholics. This settlement is often called the Cromwellian Settlement, and given Cromwell was reaching political ascendancy by 1652, it's not unfairly named, but it's important to note that its roots preceded him. But that's looking ahead. For now, Ireland therefore has Old Irish, New Scots, New English and Old English, and it's about to get more complicated, because in July 1642 we see the arrival of a new ingredient into this remarkably complicated concoction of identity politics. Attracted by the rebellion, the exiles start to return, and one in particular, Owen Roe O'Neill, arrives in Ulster. O'Neill had been fighting in Europe for the Catholic cause and he represents an expat community derived from the flight of the Earls in 1607. Remember that when Hugh O'Neill and O'Donnell fled the country. Roe O'Neill becomes commander of the rebel forces in Ulster, transplanting the people who had started it like Philem O'Neill. The war then proceeds. 
Much of the wild, uncontrolled violence of the initial rebellion is now brought under control now that there are two military commanders in place. But though violence changes and becomes more controlled, do not imagine it is any prettier. Both sides throughout the Irish Civil War seek to deprive their enemies of supplies, a war of attrition. And caught in the middle of this are the ordinary Irish people. After a year of conflict, O'Neill was to write that Ulster was not only like a desert, but like hell, if hell could exist on earth. It is another reminder that, like so much in the civil wars, the dreadful extent of death in Ireland is not simply a matter of the Cromwellian campaign, brutal though that was. They were the result of a war that raged for ten years and inflicted by both government and rebel forces. So how are we doing? It has to be said that many histories of the British civil wars kind of skate over Ireland, except 1641 and 1649, and I suspect both you and I may regret my decision not to do that, because it is fiercely complicated. But look, it is important, and it deeply colours much that happens in both England and Scotland. So I'm not done with Ireland, oh no, although we are getting close. There is just one more big thing, the arrival of Confederate Ireland. In May and June 1642, there were a series of meetings in Kilkenny among the Catholic clergy and then later the rebel gentry and lords of Ireland would join them. As a result of all these discussions, they formed a new government in Ireland called the Confederate Association. Its motto was Irish united for God, King and Country. The Confederation basically looked at what the Scots were doing. And although they were the polar opposite in religious terms, the Confederates liked what they saw. They thought the Scottish tactics with the king had been very good. So what they did now is they all swore to an oath, basing the new regime of the Confederacy on defence of the king and the true religion. Their true religion, of course, being Catholicism. This oath offered loyalty to the king just so long as he defended the true religion. Secondly, they liked the Scots' negotiate-from-a-position-of-strength approach, which had forced Charles to make such an extraordinary list of secular and religious concessions to the Covenanters. So, what they would do is this. The Confederacy would set up three armies. They would dominate Ireland, they would take Dublin, and then they would negotiate with Charles from a position of strength. But look, given that Charles's true religions were the primacy of royal power and the Church of England, it is a fatally rocky basis for strategy. It's very unlikely he would have accepted the primacy of a Catholic church in one of his, re- one of his kingdoms. This fundamental weakness of strategy would plague the Confederacy throughout its existence. The Confederacy now shifted control of the Irish revolt, which had been briefly taken over by ordinary Irish folk, back into the control of the Irish elite. There are many elements in the Confederacy, the Gaelic Irish lords, the Old English, the Catholic clergy, and now this new element, the exiles. But it becomes easier now to drop the old ethnic separations we've been using, you know, native Irish, Old English because there are now two main lines of thought in the Confederacy that crossed ethnic lines. The Irish historian Michal O'Shokru called these the Peace Party on one hand and the Clerical Party on the other. The Peace Party of the Confederacy aimed to negotiate a peace with the king, a peace based on the existing order. 
which confirmed the land rights of the Irish lords, confirmed freedom to worship as they wished. It was something along the lines of an enhancement to the accommodation that had begun to be reached before the revolt under the idea of the graces. It was essentially an alliance of landowners, Gaelic and Old English, an alliance to preserve the existing order in the face of New English and Parliament. The other faction in the Confederacy, though, the clerical party, led by the likes of Roe O'Neill, were much less oriented towards such compromise. They were inspired by the counter-reformation on the continent and by the ambitions of Spain and the papacy. They sought to recover lost church lands from the secular hands. They looked to implement the counter-reformation in Ireland completely to re-establish the primacy in Ireland of the Pope. Now, both of these approaches, the Peace Party and the Clerical Party, both of them had problems, mainly with Charles's complete conviction that the king must be supreme governor of the church. The Peace Party at least had some hope of accommodation with the king, though they had none with Parliament. The Clerical Party would require a miracle to gain that sort of level of concession from Charles. Both of them, however, were based on a very clear understanding that if Parliament won, and if Parliament won in England, all bets were off. Both strategies might be a long shot with the King, but both would be utterly impossible to negotiate with Parliament. So, for the Confederacy to succeed, unless it was to shoot for complete independence, it not only needed to conquer all of Ireland to get that position of strength, but the king must not be defeated by Parliament in England. Critical, critical with klaxons, sirens and fire alarms sounding. Parliament must not defeat the king or their goose would be cooked in the cauldron of a parliamentary army. OK, to summarise Ireland, this is what we have. In Dublin, the government and its armed forces are represented by the Earl of Ormond. That basically comes to mean the king, but for the moment is still king and Parliament. In Ulster, we have, in addition, the New Scots with an army under Munro that is supposed to report to Ormond, but which doesn't. In the rest of Ireland, we have the Catholic rebels under the Confederacy, trying to force the king into a compromise. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being crystal and 10 being gobbledygook, how clear is that? New Scots in Ulster, government in Dublin, Confederacy in the rest of the island. OK, let's get back to England then. And Charles sets up his court in the fair city of Oxford in November 1642. And suddenly, Oxford is set up as a capital city, complete with royal court. Although personal regional loyalties might push me to suggest that Loughborough might have been a better choice, after all, we are proposing to build the glorious Carillion in 200 years' time, I'm forced to admit that Oxford was a pretty good choice. It was well connected on the River Thames, reasonably central, and with all the university buildings there for public offices. I mean, it wasn't the powerhouse that was London, but it did have the look. The king took over the dean's lodgings at Christchurch College and had it all decked out nice with the normal separation of rooms between public and private, just like the Palace of Whitehall. Now, I did first think poor old Dean, since he was thrown out of his house and home, evicted as it were. But hey, on reflection, lucky old Dean when there was no king around, because he must then have had a pretty impressive gaff if it was fit for Charles's use. Elsewhere in Oxford, all the organs of government were now recreated from scratch. 
the law courts were opened at Oxford schools. There was an exchequer at All Souls, an ordinance office at Christchurch, a magazine set up at New College, and the Mint at New Inn Hall. And meanwhile, people started to pour into the town, pulled there by the court, but also fleeing London if they were royalists. Oxford would become completely packed, overstuffed with people, including the king's army, and there was poo and detritus everywhere with accompanying plague and disease as the sewers completely failed to cope. There was then, therefore, a bloke called John Taylor who was put in charge of the nasty business of keeping the rivers and watercourses clean in Oxford. Now, John Taylor is an interesting chap, if you will permit me one small digression. He called himself the water poet because he was a boatman who'd plied the trade in London, carrying by his own reckoning 20,000 people over the course of his life. He also loved travelling around and writing about his country, but in quite eccentric ways, I have to tell you. So, just for example, he travelled from London to Quenborough in Kent in a paper boat down the Thames with two stockfish tied to canes for oars. Why? is the first question. And secondly, how is that even possible, a paper boat with two stockfish tied to canes for oars? But I'm told it's been reenacted in the modern day. I don't quite know why you'd do that either, but it has apparently been done. John Taylor also invented a palindrome. Are you ready for this? Here it goes. Lewd did I live, and evil did I dwell. You've got to slightly misspell dwell to make it work and use an ampersand, but look, it does work. Anyway, why am I telling all this? Because although in favour of many aspects of Parliament's belief, John Taylor was a great fan of the Book of Common Prayer, and it was that that made him end up supporting the King and in Oxford, where he was given this thankless task of keeping the watercourses clean. Since he was a poet, he, of course, wrote a poem about his experiences in the world of Oxford and a couple of lines of it give an insight into the problems that he faced. Dead hogs, dogs, cats and well-flayed carrion horses, their noisome corpses soiled the watercourses. I could go on, but I wouldn't want to make you ill, so I'll stop just there. I'd like to tell you more about John Taylor, but you know, we are supposed to be talking about the great events of the Civil War and the search for liberty and the rights of the people. But... If you are a fan of English nonsense, the likes of Edward Lear, for example, and who could not be, I ask, there's a very eminent scholar called Noel Malcolm who traces the origins of the nonsense genre to John Taylor. And surely, Stockfish on Canes will never not be nonsense, even if not quite the level of there in a wood a piggywig stood with a ring in the end of his nose. For a bit more colour about the new Royal Oxford, let me tell you about one of the people that did some flooding into Oxford, forced out of their hometown, one Anne Harrison by name. She will find love in the city with one young gallant, Richard Fanshawe, but initially she was absolutely distraught on arriving in this new, mad, crowded world. She came from a well-off merchant family and described herself in her diary at home in her youth, that which graver people call a hoyden girl. When they arrived at Oxford, the Harrisons were, of course, much reduced in wealth, and anyway, Oxford was suffering a serious housing crisis. So poor Anne wrote despairingly, We, finding ourselves like fishes out of water, from as good a house as any gentleman in England, we come to a baker's house in an obscure street, from rooms well furnished to lie in a very bad bed in a carrot, and so on. 
However, where there's a court and a hoyden, there's fun to be had, and she hooked up with the daughter of the Earl of Holland, Isabel Fine, and amused herself in a couple of ways. One, by putting on little plays in Trinity College and inviting people along. And another, by frankly terrorising aged dons. Let me explain. By and large, Oxford was split. The townspeople didn't welcome the royalists at all, but the university did. But despite their royal enthusiasm, for many of the older profs, of course, suddenly their world was unacceptably wild, used as they were to their books and their ivory towers and all that sort of thing. And it seems that Anne and her friends liked to find fun in the gloom of civil war by shocking the old dudes, as one reported, turning up to chapel, half-dressed like angels. Angels not being used in the biblical sense here. It was generally accepted that such an occasion shortened the life of one aged prof called Ralph Kettle, for whose heart the shock was all too much. Opportunities for a good social life would then increase once the Queen arrives back in Oxford, as she will next year, and sets up shop in Merton College. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, I was supposed to be polishing off the fighting in England in 1642. So, even before Turnham Green, the war had become general. It is no longer about the King's Army versus the Parliamentary Army. We have hit plurals, armies. So, let us do a very broad brush summary by region. North and East, Midlands, West and Southwest. Are you sitting comfortably? If so, and even if you're not, I have to say, I shall begin. In the north of England, I have very carefully already introduced you to the main protagonists. William Cavendish, the Earl of Newcastle, was one, and a very grand and well-heeled man he was. And during his career as a general, he was described by Clarendon as amorous in poetry and music, to which he indulged the greatest part of his time. Getting up about 11 o'clock after a good lie-in when the army he commanded had been up and marching since the crack of dawn, composing poetry rather than beating Parliament. But, on the other hand, he spent loads of money raising a royal army, and they were beautifully kitted out. Newcastle's white coats, they were called. Charles knew a good thing when he saw it and made him governor of Newcastle and the four counties of the north, Northumberland, Durham, Cumberland and Westmoreland. And the battleground was effectively Yorkshire, since the royalists in Yorkshire quickly asked Newcastle for help because in the orange-sashed corner of Parliament were the Hothams, John and John, who have appeared already before holding Hull for Parliament against the King. But there was also the minor gentry family of the Fairfaxes, father and son, Fernandino and Thomas Fairfax. And you better get used to that name. We've already seen them being snubbed by Charles at York. The Hothams were a bit horrified at the success and authority given by Parliament to the Fairfaxes, because they were a Terribly ordinary family, don't you know? And had found their support amongst hoi polloi the textile towns of West Ridings of Yorkshire, like Bradford and Halifax, where there were incidentally a lot of Crowthers. Hence, 
the panic of the Yorkshire Royalists and appeal to Newcastle because the West Riding was against them. Newcastle's army was now the 10-ton guerrilla in the north, maybe 8,000 men strong with 2,000 horse and bigger than any of the opposition facing it. And so once the local neutrality pact in Yorkshire had failed, Newcastle controlled most of the counties for the king, including the great city of York, and much of the coast too, except the clothing districts then of West Yorkshire and the fair towns of Scarborough and Hull. Let's then go to the west, south and west, Wales will be mainly royalists, although not exclusively so. The historian David Scott noted that Wales was rather unique amongst the Stuart kingdoms by being quite strongly royalist and therefore worried by parliamentarians on the one hand, while on the other hand sharing England's same panic about Irish Catholics, though the bit conflicted. In the west and southwest of England, we're going to talk about Ralph Hopton and William Waller in the future. Ralph Hopton was a Puritan MP who had been one of those moderate constitutionalists, initially supporting reforms, but then increasingly alienated by the extent of the restrictions on the king's authority and eventually jumping ship and becoming a royalist. Down in Cornwall, where he was originally based, there had been a local peace treaty, but when all that fell to pieces, it was Hopton that had been left in control of the whole county. Cornwall, which always has something of its own flavour, would be one of those places most steadfastly loyal to Charles. Now, Ralph was very good friends with William Waller. They'd fought together in the Thirty Years' War, they'd accompanied Elizabeth Stuart and had to escape Bohemia together with her. You may remember I mentioned it ages ago, in expectation of just this moment. But in this war now, they found themselves on opposite sides. In late 1642, Waller had then marched with his levies through the south of England, capturing Chichester, Farnham, Arundel, Winchester for Parliament. He made Robin of Essex look like a slug. He was the most successful parliamentary general of the early part of the war by far, and the new sheets started calling him William the Conqueror in celebration. As he moved towards the southwest, he would then come into conflict with his bestest pal, Ralph Hopton and they will write to each other through the storm. In the Midlands, very briefly, Lord Brooke, the young Junto man, had already been involved before Edge Hill, but the Midlands would always be vulnerable to the King's main army close by as it was at Oxford, and its most talented commander, Prince Rupert. The overall profile then, as it is generally given, is at the end of 1642, Charles probably has his nose in front, despite the repulse at Turnham Green. The story is generally given that the king was strong in the north, west and southwest, and Parliament was strong in the south and the east. But this is a generalisation so gross as to be the equivalent of eating all the pies and greggs in one sitting, or even a baked bean sandwich. Because the big thing to remember about the English civil wars is that everywhere, or most everywhere anyway, is a patchwork of loyalties. There is no neat dividing line, north and southeast, east or west, England or France. To say that the king was strong in the west is merely to say that at any given time they were in a position to impose their control over the area. Areas change hands all the time and are a patchwork of loyalties, from entire regions to individual parishes or villages. It's all mixed up. 
What this meant was that fortresses and garrisons will play a very important role in the civil wars. There were far more sieges than pitched battles because garrisons were needed everywhere to hold on to territory and control it. And of course, the amount of territory defined your tax and recruiting base. But even the most successful campaigns by the big armies very rarely cleared a region of all opposing military outposts. There were always pockets that needed to be cleared up later by local forces, and these were based in garrisons. And then they were often swept away when the bigger armies came back or appeared in their region and then moved on. Let me give you something of an example of all this ebb and flow, toing and froing. An example of the local conflicts fought in parishes, towns, and villages up and down England and Wales over the course of the civil wars. I'm going to do this by returning to the story of the Puritan gentry family, Brilliana Harley, at Brampton Bryan in Herefordshire. We've heard about the Harleys before in these pages, of how Robert Harley had been a reforming MP of Brilliana's worries for her son Ned at Oxford University. Their Puritan introspection and worries about how well they lived their lives and supported the poor of the parish according to their view of God's law. Brilliana was the normal manager of the estate, and now even more so. Robert was usually away, both as an MP and a military commander. Brilliana was made painfully aware that the sympathies of the locals around Hereford lay with the king. She was not by nature a martial sort of person, but her sense of duty to the family, community and cause were powerful. She realised early that she would need to fight to keep hold of her estates and her loyalties. By July 1642, she was improving the defences of their manor house. She writes to her son Ned about her resolution to stay and defend their home despite the dangers and hostility all around her. If I go away, I shall leave all that your father has to the prey of our enemies, which they would be glad of. I cannot make a better use of my life. By December 1642, the threat from her neighbours in Ludlow was explicit. They are in a mighty violence against me. Her tenants stopped paying her rent. Grocers were ordered not to deliver to her and one of her servants was beaten up in town. Threats were made to drive off her cattle and Brilliana worried that it would be worse. They might seize upon our house and cut our throats. Finally, the king ordered a local royalist to prepare to attack the manor and in March 1643 demands were made to hand the house over. She refused. More than that, Breliana had the moat of the house filled with water and prepared to hold out as long as she could. But in May 1643, there was relief. William Waller and his parliamentarian army came to the area and suddenly Parliament held local control. For the Harleys, it meant security. One of Brilliana's servants was released from jail along with a load of other local parliamentarians and the pressure was off. But the relief was short-lived. Waller and his army moved on, and the old loyalties reasserted themselves. Once more, local royalists demanded she surrender her house. Brilliana used words to maintain her freedom. She does a very clever job of corresponding with the local royalist commander, Sir William Vavasor, holding him off with vague promises, all the while preparing to fight, getting together a contingent of soldiers, buying arms for them. By July, Vavasor would no longer be fobbed off. He brought 700 men to the gate of Brampton, drove off the cattle, demanded Brilliana surrender in immediately in return for a safe conduct. 
Briliana's letters indicate she was in a right old panic, but was still convinced of her cause despite the danger. And so she replied imperiously that, I have the law of nature, of reason and of the land on my side. So that was it. The royalists started bombarding the manor house and constructing earthworks to press the attack forward. Still, Brampton Bryan held out. And it did seem actually that everyone was terribly keen to avoid any bloodshed, being local and all that sort of thing, so much so that one John Scudamore brought a letter directly from the king to Brilliana. He was admitted to the house by dint of a rope ladder down the wall, up which he shimmered in all his finery and presented said letter to Brilliana. It was full of the sort of old-world chivalry, demanding a peaceful surrender, unwilling that our forces, in respect of your sex and condition, should take such a course for forcing or firing of the same as they must otherwise take. Brilliana was having none of that. This was her place, destined for her son Ned in the cause of Parliament, not for the King. So once more, she refused. And again, at the moment of danger, the fates intervened. In August 1643, Essex's parliamentary army reached the reason at nearby Gloucester. Vavasor and the Royalists were forced again to raise the siege. But just as had happened with Waller, Essex then moved on. Local loyalties again reasserted themselves. And before the rat had eaten the end of the drainpipe, Royalists were back, in force, outside the walls, threatening siege and violence. By this time, Brilliana's stalwart defence of the House had become a core celeb for Parliament. The London news sheets sang the story of her defiance and isolation, a sign of the rightness of her cause. But it could not last. In October 1643, Brilliana Harley died, and although the House continued to hold out, its heart was broken. By 1644, they were forced to surrender. Prince Rupert, as was his idiom, ordered the defenders to be put to the sword, but William Vavasor, the royalist commander, was a local, and he would not suffer that, so he refused and allowed the defenders to leave. These local conflicts and holdouts were a common story throughout the several wars. I'm sure we will have more of them. At this very time, for example, Brilliana herself had written with triumph that all Lancashire was in the control of Parliament. But in point of fact, it wasn't. Just like Brampton Bryant, a very similar story was being played out at Latham House, held against all parliamentary comers by the Countess of Derby. Just one more thing, then, about 1642, which is the continuing and persistent longing for peace. There was a general feeling, and it will persist for much of 1643 even, that all of this simply could not be happening, not here in our own little world. Up and down the country, many of the county gentry and middling sort, as we've seen, though very much politicised and engaged, couldn't quite believe in this dreadful transformation from a deeply settled, ordered and peaceful society. They could not understand why King and Parliament could not just get this resolved. After all, there seemed to be so little difference between their utterances. As we discussed in episode 382, so much of the rhetoric depends on what you believe the balance of rights between Parliament and King ought to be. Charles was now pretending he never really meant to rule without Parliament, just been messing with us about all that new councils chat. And of course, he meant to recreate good Queen Bessie's church. 
I would take you back to the MP Henry Martin's protestation oath, now being sworn to by communities up and down the country, even as the blood-red flower of war blossomed. This was an oath where Parliament itself had appealed for unity and specifically reaffirmed the ancient constitution, the community of the Commonwealth based on king, Parliament and religion. As the horrors of war came closer to more and more people, the peace party in the country was reflected in Parliament. Some of the prime movers in the peace faction were staunch reformers, including most notably Denzel Hollis, who had been one of those holding Speaker Finchie in his chair in 1629 so that John Selden could complete his protest against the royal usurpation of the people's representatives. This will always be a fault line in Parliament in both Lords and Commons. The Peace Party on one side, the War Party on the other. And as we've already seen happen with the likes of Edward Hyde, MPs and individuals will now continually dribble away from Parliament and London to return to the side of the King, horrified by the arrival of bloodshed. And of course, this changes the balance of those left in Parliament. It means that the House of Parliament will contain a greater proportion of those who recognise that this freedom must be fought for now, whatever the cost. Even then, a peace party will persist all the way through to 1649. There will be a constant stream of petitions to the king for peace. And so it was in December 1642 when 3,000 citizens marched through the streets of London on the House of Lords and the London Common Council and demanded peace. In 1643, the likes of Marmaduke Rawdon, a merchant looking increasingly out of place in the Puritan-dominated London Artillery Company, spoke out for this petition, made sure that it was sent to the King at Oxford. And on the 13th of January 1643, the King's response to the petition arrived in London and was read out in the Guildhall in front of the assembled masses. Charles demanded the immediate surrender of the mayor, Isaac Pennington, and other aldermen like John Venn before he would negotiate. And one speaker, Thomas Langley, spoke up in favour of the king's demands in front of the people. But then John Pym stood. He rejected these demands. He defended the rights of their mayor. He argued convincingly that the arrest of Charles's opponents was absolutely no basis for negotiation, no sign of moderation. Pym won this argument. He won the argument that the freedom of the elected alderman must be defended. And as he finished, the citizens waved their hats and roared, We will live and die with them! We will live and die with them! It has to be said that the case for war was supported by many of the more radical preachers because they saw that only Parliament stood between them and the repression of their religion. Unless Charles was defeated, there would be no Presbyterianism or there would be none of the religious freedoms that the independents fought for. The fiery, witty preacher, Hugh Peters, had a talent for appealing directly and powerful to ordinary people in a way that inspired and engaged them in the words of the time. He could be pretty extreme, so many loved him, but many hated and feared him. He would accompany the army throughout the wars. He'd returned in a delegation from Massachusetts in 1641, as it happens, and he now demanded at the assembly that The Lord's battle is begun in your land. Fight courageously. Go on victoriously. Lend more monies. Send your servants and comfort one another with these words. Puritan. Rebel. Roundhead. 
for at the day when ye shall be called by these names, be sure to make answer, and she shall be sure to go to heaven. Scary and inspiring in equal measure. But see how the insults of the royalists, rebel, roundhead, puritan, began to be worn as badges of pride. Still, the desire for peace across Parliament continued, and yet another, more serious set of proposals were discussed by the Lords and Commons. They retreated from some of the 19 propositions that had been the Parliamentary Manifesto of 1642, though continued to insist on religious reform. These were then presented to Charles in Oxford in February 1643 in what became known as the Oxford Treaty. Charles responded with his own set of demands, when Parliament returned with a proposal for a 20-day cessation of violence to have a discussion about them. Charles then raised his demands again, insisting now that the army be put under his immediate control before any negotiations could be started. He may just as well handed out razor blades for use by MPs on their own throats. And yet, still, Parliament debated the propositions, and it wasn't until April 1643 that sense finally prevailed and they realised there was no ground for discussion here. Charles had no desire for peace on anything other than his own terms, and they abandoned the search for peace. The historian Richard Cust and others are pretty clear about what was going on here with Charles, the Queen and his swordsman advisers. He had absolutely no intention of coming to an agreement at this point. He actually wrote to Ormond at the same time in Ireland about these proposals, saying, No less power than his who made the world can draw peace out of these articles. His real intention was to look serious about peace to the country at large, while forcing Parliament to be the ones that ended the process and therefore looked like the warmongers. He wanted to present himself as the sorrowful, misunderstood, peace-loving father of the country, the injured party facing a bunch of warmongering, power-crazy webbles. At the same time, appearing to want to talk might enable him to divide Parliament, to encourage the position of the peace party there. And finally, stringing out negotiations simply gave him specific military advantage because the ear of Essex, Parliament's supreme military commander, had become attuned to the siren calls of the peace party, and he refused to move his army until the process was done. While Charles's army, meanwhile, was free to roam under Rupert's command and do as it would. By April 1643, though, as I say, it was clear that more fighting would be needed before Charles could be forced to enter into genuine negotiations that actually had some sort of outside chance of re-establishing peace. And so war it will be, gentle listeners, that will assail your ears next time. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all your comments and reviews and so on. Good luck and have a great week. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.